0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, As always, it is a uh, a privilege uh, to get to come and to have the opportunity to uh, share God's word together. I am thankful for always that opportunity. Um, Perhaps I'm a little bit less thankful uh, this morning because I have to follow up uh, two excellent weeks of preaching from Dr. Bob Livesay, Um, but that's like half. That's like glass half full. That's pessimistic thinking, right? So more optimistically, I should say, um, I am uh, grateful that after two weeks um, of Dr. Bob preaching, then when y'all all saw me coming onto the stage, we all lowered our expectations. So I'm thankful we're on the same page together. Um, so we'll go, we'll go with that side of things. Uh, if you weren't here, I will uh, encourage you to go back and to listen to uh, Dr. Bob's uh, past two weeks. Um, he did a fantastic job uh, expositing scripture and bringing forth uh, the idea of what a disciple is and really what a true committed disciple is. Um, and one of, one of Bob's points that uh, I particularly was struck by uh, and really appreciated him making um, was the uh, tie to the eternal value of the investment. discipleship is. A discipleship is not just an investment in this world. The discipleship is an investment with an internal um, payback. And if anything, we are supposed to invest in the internal things is certainly what makes sense. Um, uh, In my own notes, when I was considering that, I I began to write the sentence, um, discipleship is embarking on an otherworldly journey in this age that will consummate and continue in the new Journey, the new world journey of the age to come. And both of these are accomplished through Jesus Christ. Essentially, we have a discipleship journey set before us now that doesn't end now, but will continue on into eternity. And when I began to think about that sentence and, and mull it over in my brain, um, I decided that this would be a good way to close three weeks of uh, discipleship. Would be then now to consider um, this merging of the two, this disciple-making now in this age and what it means to the eternal age to come. And so I want to consider this morning the identity of a kingdom-minded disciple. What does it look like to be a kingdom-minded disciple, to be marked by that identity, to be bestowed that identity? Um, What does it look like to be participating in that kingdom now, but with great anticipation of that kingdom to come. What does it look like to be given an identity, not to have to earn an identity? And how should our lives look in response? Um, so to do this, I wanted to uh, uh, consider in our passage this morning, we'll be starting in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 starts a, um, actually probably the longest uninterrupted words of Jesus in an entire teaching all together recorded in one place. It's most commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, all 107 verses are tied together only in uh, the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Luke touches on these, but he does so kind of frameworking around it and really just highlights themes. Um, But it is only Matthew that includes it in its entirety. And Matthew sandwiches it right into the middle of his book with chronological events on either side. And one of the main reasons why he sandwiches it in the middle is because when Matthew wants you to read his book, he wants you to come away with one ultimate message, which is um, that Jesus is king. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah king. Jesus is the messianic king. And so with that in mind, he then gives us this message of the king very much sandwiched in the middle of the ministry of the king. And so what is the king's message? Um, Well, if we backed up before we jumped into chapter 5, we actually find it in chapter 4, verse 17. um, When Jesus goes and he begins to teach and his message, the king's message is repent for the kingdom of hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near the king is announcing his kingdom. And really, if we were to rightly understand anything about the Sermon on the Mount, if we move and rightly understand it, then we must then move to rightly apply it. Our application that we must apply has to be one that is ultimately based in repentance. Because again, that's the ultimate message of the king. Repent for the kingdom is heaven, is kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. And so, if we read the this Sermon on the Mount and we miss this step of repentance, then we have read it incorrectly. We've missed the message. Now, who is the original audience that Matthew was um, writing to, or really that Jesus was teaching to in Matthew's recording here? Um, and really, we see it in the introduction of chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds. And so Jesus has been uh, teaching, uh, he has been proclaiming his message, he has been healing, he has been doing miraculous signs, so people are gathering around him, thus the crowds are forming, so seeing these crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Again, Dr. Bob uh, highlighted this already, and I think the true statement of this word, again, as disciples, is not just to the twelve, but it's talking about all of his followers, right? Um, we were talking about, then there are those that are just curious. there are those who are uh, convinced to believe, and then there are those who are uh, committed uh, in their discipleship, and this becomes a fine line, a dividing knife for where their commitment's going to lie. All of these people are here um, at representing these disciples. We learned in the past couple of weeks again that um, there's all sorts of motivation and devotion found in this audience. And I think the same question is true for us as readers 2,000 years later. We can't then ask ourselves, what is our motivation and what is our devotion when we read this sermon? John Stott, um, an English theologian, uh, put it well like this, so I included it on the screen. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Oof. Motivation and devotion Again, this is what we have to ask ourselves when we're faced with Jesus' teaching here. Now, the overall form actually falls into three parts. And we're not going to cover all the three parts. We're actually only going to cover part of the first part. Um, But the three parts of the Sermon on the Mount begins first with a section all about the identity of kingdom participants. The second part moves into the behavior of such kingdom participants. And then lastly is the provision of kingdom participants. And I want to focus again on what is the identity of this kingdom minded disciple. And to do so, we're only going to kind of cover the first 12 verses. And the first 12 verses include one of the most famous parts of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is known as the Beatitudes. Um, so before we read them together, I'm going to take a couple of observations uh, to consider together. First off, um, what are the Beatitudes? Um, that's a, if you're thinking that of yourself, that's a very good question. And in fact, was the very question of my own daughter uh, last night over dinner. And I had to stop and I had to think, well, Beatitudes is blessings, but that doesn't sound the same. And so it doesn't come directly from that. And then I was like, I should look this up before tomorrow. So in the English, <laughs> Beatitudes finds its origin actually in the Latin "beatus," which then the Latin word betis does mean blessed or blessing. This is why so many English translations translate this as blessed are or blessed are. Um, you'll have to forgive me. I will say blessed this whole time because I was raised learning the King James version and that only just fit better with the King James version. Even though we're going to be reading out of the ESV today, uh, I'll still be pronouncing it a little bit older, but it, it doesn't matter. There's still the same start of the phrases and it communicates the same thought. The Greek word is a little bit different here though. And not that it changes it. It actually just expounds on the meaning here. Um, The Greek word that we get translated here blesses is makarios, which is simply a happy state or a feeling of happiness. Uh, It could be translated, and even the Amplified Bible gets closest to this. It could be translated, oh, how happy are those who, whatever character trait. C.G. Monifor put it this way, um, blessedness is happiness because of divine favor. Makarios refers to a happy condition that is the direct result of receiving God's favor. And so we must go into the Beatitudes remembering that this is a happy condition. But yet, when we read it, then the second question is, well, how should I feel? Because when I read happy and I read these statements, the feelings get a little bit complicated. At times, these statements will feel at best ironic, perhaps paradoxical, certainly counterintuitive, and certainly anti culture there is a message that is coming from Jesus' words um, that's going to have perhaps a mixture of all those feelings, and I don't want you just to disregard those feelings when you come to the hardship of these words. I think the feelings do play a part, um, but rather what you should do is come to that complicated del- delving through these passages. And what I want to, to encourage you is towards a strong feeling of overall what. How should we feel about these? What should we feel about these beatitudes? Well, we should feel the focus in on this paradigm shift because ultimately that's what Jesus is doing is he is walking us through this paradigm shift. He's walking us through the kingdom of now and the kingdom of come that is now that we can participate, but will ultimately be fulfilled when he comes again. There's a paradigm shifting nature to this, and it will make us feel a little bit uneasy with how do we engage in it. And I think that feeling is correct. But don't miss the invitation to jump in and not be left behind the shift of the paradigm. Jump on board. This is Jesus' invitation. I'm shifting things around, and you're welcome to engage in this kingdom mindset. And then lastly, the last consideration of the Beatitudes is that they are to be taken as a whole. This isn't a uh, multiple choice. Uh, This isn't a pick and choose. Uh, You can't just take the ones out that you may have a Personality that has a greater disposition with and you say well that one 's easier with me, so i 'll just live out in this one and yeah that one 's not so much my cup of tea i 'll just not read over that one but, oh good, we came to you know if I can get five out of the eight or something at least maybe uh, we can say that i 'm doing all right um, no you, you can 't pick and choose these this is a this is a package deal um, coming with one comes with all um, our, our greater. Our greater understanding here is that to be marked by as a kingdom disciple is to be found with all eight of these traits as an accurate description of your life, not just some, the sum of the all. So with those things kind of covered, what I do want to do is jump into the reading of our passage this morning. I am going to invite you to stand out of reference of God's word. Um, We are going to be reading from Matthew 5 again. If you have a digital copy of the Bible, you can uh, navigate over to the ESV. It will be on the screens as well. Um, And then also, if you don't have a copy, a physical copy of God's word uh, and you would want one, you can reach down in the racks and you can grab one there and feel free to take that as our gift from uh, the church to you. We know your time will be blessed in reading it. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you hear the very words of God and thanks be to God. Let's pray Father may the words that we have just read ring true in our lives and true in our hearts May our time considering them be founded not in what I say or what new things we can learn but as One's desperate for you to do what only you can do, which is transform our hearts Give us Lord a renewed fervor to live out the identity that you have bestowed upon us in these things we pray amen y'all may be seated So now we'll take our, 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 normal mode of operatus here. And now, now we've read the passage in a whole, we're going to walk back through it, um, kind of verse by verse and consider it in the parts as it's explained to us. I will confess that the last time, uh, that I sat under, um, at our, at a former church, the pastor's preaching over this, uh, he took 10 weeks to preach through, uh, these 12 verses in which I hope to do in just, uh, one morning. So I hope you're not hungry. <laughs> But really, no, it is hunger that I hope that in this overarching flyby view that hopefully what you see from it is at least to be able to take a morsel of the overall overall picture that is presented here so that, again, it can renew this motivation to dive back into this a little bit more seriously personally on your own time and with your family. Because again, we won't do it justice by this fly view. There's going to be so much richness here, but hopefully in this taste, it'll bring you back to want to experience more and that you'll personally get to see that. So starting again in verse 1, we run into the setting of the stage. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Now, Jesus is imploring two cultural devices here that to any good first century Jew, they would have immediately understand two things that he would have been doing. We are a little bit removed from that culture, so we may miss them. So I wanted to take a moment and highlight them. The first one seems really simple, and it is simply that when he goes up on the mountain, he sits down. Now, to us, we may think very little of that. But what Jesus is doing is he's actually assuming the role and the posture of a rabbi. He's assuming the posture of a teacher because back then in the first century that the, the teacher would be seated. He would be the one seating down and all the learners, the disciples around him would remain standing. And that was just the way that they did it culturally. I mean, could you imagine if that was still culturally applicable today, how different our churches would be if we finished singing and then I sat down in a comfy chair and y'all had to stand for the entire time. That would be quite a way to consider a sermon. Now, in fairness, the rebuke that would come to that or the retort that would come to that would also probably then be very fair to say, well, Jesus preached this entire sermon uh, that can be read through from start to finish in about 10 to 12 minutes. If your sermons were 10 to 12 minutes, I could probably stand and make it through just fine. But yeah, maybe there is something to standing. And again, there is something that I appreciate of like, we, well, we did it. We stood for the reading of God's word. You have participated in that tradition today and nobody fell asleep. Second device that uh, Jesus use here, uses here, that he's beginning with this, um, this listing of these Beatitudes, uh, again, is one that would be very familiar to Jewish thought, um, the way that is found in Jewish writings or Jewish teachings. Uh, and it's actually a technique called a chiasm. Um, a chiastic structure, a chiasm, in simplest terms, is to repeat the message in reverse to affirm the former in the latter. So it's simply just trying to... The, to provide a repetition of thought in a reverse order. Uh, A friend and brother of mine named Matt Lance in his Bible study notes he wrote many, many years ago um, had this chiastic structure in uh, for the summer staff that he was writing the study for. Um, And you can see he's outlined it um, of how this thought is built out. So you have your first thought presented in verse three, and then he expounds on that thought with another thought in verse four. Again, another expounding in verse five. And then what you have is you run into the hinge of a chiastic structure, the middle part. You run into, he then gives you verse six, and then he begins to repeat that theme. If you notice at the endings, you will see that there will be a similarity with the promise and the action here. And so he's expounding on those thoughts by providing a repetition of that thought. So now that he's hit the middle, what does he do in eight? He starts working backwards and he provides the mirror image of five. Then he moves on to nine, providing a mirror image of four, and then there's another device that the Jews used often in their writings uh, that we now call an inclusio, which to think of is just another term for bookends to, syn- to bring significance to uh, the beginning thought by bringing it to close uh, and to highlight the importance of the beginning thought in the application of the closing one. Because again, you see theirs is the kingdom of heaven is how he starts. It's mirrored in a chiasm. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven as it ends. Uh, but yet both of those promises are the only two promises that are in the present tense, action, and availability. Everything in the middle is in the future tense. And this is intentional because he's beginning this bookend. Essentially, what he's highlighting again is the importance of the beginning. If you want to be somebody who is poor in spirit, well, then good. Because you need to be poor in spirit to even understand all of these other things. And as we go through them, you'll see why this is developed upon itself. So to start to see, we're going to start in verse 3 with our first beatitude statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rewritten, I wrote it. Oh, how happy are the poor. You see the contradictory nature? You see how this doesn't quite sit? Oh, how happy are the poor? But this isn't just a physical or a material poverty, what is being referenced here. All of these beatitudes are going to reference a spiritual condition. And really what this is, again, is not a a material poverty. This is a spiritual poverty, to be poor in spirit. Thayer's Greek Dictionary defines this word that's translated poor um, to be as reduced to beggary, begging, destitute, asking alms, pathos, reduced to beggary. This is actually the same word that Luke uses in his gospel uh, in chapter 16 when he identifies the beggar who would just love the scraps from the rich man's table but is denied and is destitute and comes to his end. Destitute, begging, reduced to beggary. This makes sense in the terms of beggars because beggars truly can't rely on themselves because they have nothing to rely upon. Thus, they can only turn to the charity of others. So why on earth would this be a condition that should be blessed? Well, it's because spiritually speaking, in our emptiness, we can greater appreciate and see his fullness. It is in our emptiness, our depraved spiritual condition, that then we can greater greater understand his fullness and gift of his grace to us as beggars. And this is why the Beatitudes um, have, have often been misinterpreted, and this is why this interpretation is wrong. These Beatitudes are not supposed to be a list of a checklist of the do's or the don'ts that will get you into heaven. This is an ethic that describes the kingdom minded disciple, but it isn't the task lift list to achieve the status of a kingdom minded discipleship because we know. The right standing before God only comes by grace. Thus, no man should boast. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, it's not by our works. This is a gift. And really, the truth is here, everybody, everybody is poor in spirit. Everybody has a condition of begging, of emptiness, of nothing that they can rely on in their spiritual state. It's just those who can know it and thus seek the one who can provide And then there's those who don't know it and thus don't seek the one who can provide. Again, we run into um, this notion that uh, every time we we receive one of these character traits that's given to us, we also then have this attached blessing that comes as a promise. And here, what we have is again, a a reminder that this is a gift given, not something earned. Those will inherit the, the kingdom of heaven. They're not in, Earning their way, they are inheriting their way. It's not that they've done anything to deserve it. Again, a beggar knows he has nothing to rely upon. Thus, he is marked happy only because his condition is marked by another to grant him entrance, not marked by his own worth. I think this is why Jesus gives us the parable of prayer in Luke 18. Why he describes two men going into the synagogue why there's a picture of one, the Pharisee, who then stands up proudly and begins to boast about his own accomplishments and everything that he has and why he should have right status, not this lowly sinner, this tax collector. And that's why this tax collector doesn't even look up to God. Lifting his chin to heaven, he buries his chin and beats his chest and declares. I am not worthy of the mercy I am asking for. He knows his condition and he knows what he is asking for. And Jesus' great punchline at the end of that parable is one of those men went away justified. And it was that tax collector, that sinner. That's the right posture we should take. John Calvin in his commentator on it put it like this. He only who is reduced to nothing in himself... And relies wholly on the mercy of God, is poor in spirit. And so again, we see why this is the first beatitude that we must take to understand all the others. And our prayer for this beatitude would be, "O oh Lord, help us to not live falsely, but rightly remain poor in spirit. Running into our second beatitude, um, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, how happy are are the sad. And I'll tell you, mourning is a complex emotion. Um, and for the brevity, I know I will oversimplify it. Um, but again, the beatitudes the, the don't just deal with the emotional state. They also deal with a spiritual reality. They're concerned with a spiritual state. And when I read and was reflecting on mourning, um, I couldn't help but think about um, just this last month where I uh, lost my last um, living grandparent when my mom's dad passed away, my grandmother. And there is grief, and there is mourning, and there is a sense that um, I I am sad that she isn't with us anymore. But those really are an emotional balance uh, compared to a spiritual reality where they're in the spiritual sense, I will tell you, my heart is overjoyed because she's made whole. She's comforted. She doesn't have to grieve anymore. I'm left here grieving. And the reason why I am left here grieving is because in the spiritual condition of grief that the Lord Jesus is pointing out to us is that we are supposed to be understanding a right grief, which is the grief of sin still in our lives. Because this is why my grandmother doesn't have to grieve anymore, is because she doesn't have sin in her life anymore. I still have this present age where I am torn with my sin and my flesh, and yet I am offered this good gift of life, and I know that there is a right way to participate in that, and yet how many times do I still choose selfishness? That I still choose sin? I still want to be comfortable with what I know is right, but yet I do what I don't want to do. And yet I want to be comforted in that and try to find comfort that way. And that's not the right condition. I don't find comfort in that. Instead, spiritually speaking, again, it's that I I need to mourn my own sin. And I know, again, because I know that I choose the way of sin. There's a hope to know that one day I will be comforted when he takes it all away. I put it like this the kingdom. Disciple is to mourn their sin as a grievous act to the heart of a holy God. And this really this grief or this repentance isn't a one time for repentance. And that so oftentimes can be a wrong message that is presented that all you have to do is accept this gift once, repent once, and then you have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Again, a former pastor would talk about this as um, so often the short-sightedness of, pre- of presenting the salvation as a gateway that then once you enter the gate, you've arrived and you have nowhere else to go. Instead, repentance should be seen as once you move through the gateway, you now enter on to the highway of an ever-going, ongoing sense of repentance day in and day out till ultimately he brings the restoration to us in his return. It's a, it's a road to be taken daily, a road that is on the way to the comforter. And so I would say our prayer in this beatitude is, oh, Lord, help us to mourn rightly our sin and to do so often. Moving on to three um, in verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Oh, how happy are the humble. Again, this is the counterculture economy of God. It is always helpful for us to to pause and remember that our culture does present the term meek a lot different than it was originally understood. We oftentimes want to equate meek with weak, and that by far is not the the right understanding of this. Uh, Meek simply is power submitted under control, power under control. Um, This was actually used uh, extra biblically in the time in the first century uh, to describe the uh, domesticating of wild animals for the use of farming. And so again, it isn't that you are uh, going out and taking a wild animal, making it meek, stripping it of all its power, and thus domesticating it for use on the farm. What would be the good of the ox or the horse if they didn't have any power? That wouldn't be helpful. But meekness truly is the, the perseverance through that power, yet the humility to submit that power under somebody else's authority. And this is what is being described here. A truly meek person is one who surrendered everything, every right of their own life and lives only for the sake of Jesus. And again, this makes sense for the spiritually poor. The beggar doesn't look to the provider and say, this makes sense. This is why I deserve that. The beggar knows his position. He knows the meekness and the humility and almost thus he's surprised anybody would take notice of him, let alone give him anything. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote it very poignantly as this, the man who is truly meek is the one who's amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. The meek person is amazed that they would be thought of and would be amazed that they would be treated well. So our prayer would be, oh Lord, help us to always be surprised by your favor. Moving on to number four, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Oh, how happy are the hungry. The psalmist would say it like this in Psalm 42, verse one, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. O God, I am thirsty. I am hungry. My soul is hungry for you. Interestingly here, we make a shift. All the other Beatitudes that we've come up to so far have been taking a posture of emptying. This one is the first time of fulfilling. And again, it'll be mirrored later on, but this is the filling up. um, Now of those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled up with his righteousness. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote it in a very Puritan way. None is so empty of the grace as he that thinks he is full. He, ha- he has most need of righteousness that least wants it. I mean, isn't that true still for us today? Is that when we think we are full, then why are we asking to be fed? When we think we have the righteousness, why would we ask and hunger and thirst after it? It's those that are in the most need of righteousness that least want it. We need to realize our starving condition and satisfy that starving condition only with the pursuit a hunger for his righteousness. Because we know sin does not satisfy. I mean, it is our perverse nature, again, is my perverse nature to experience that incompleteness, to experience that hunger, and to want satisfaction, and to acknowledge what God has said is true, and to actively deny and say, I'm going to go and I'm going to take comfort in doing the opposite of that, because after all, he'll forgive me, right? That's the wrong message. That's missing it entirely. That's you trying to fill a hunger inappropriate with nothing that will truly satisfy. It is that we must live lives, a spiritual condition where we hunger truly for righteousness and we supply our hunger for righteousness only in him and his provisions, only what he says is right. And so Lord, let us long for righteousness and really despise sin for what it is. All right, tracking right along. We're getting to the turnaround, around halfway point, and uh, we are fast running out of time. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Rewritten, oh, how happy are those who don't get the justice they deserve. Again, this is a mirror statement from uh, verse 6. So this is another filling up statement. They shall receive mercy. There's a filling up. They shall be filled up with mercy. I mentioned justice in the rewriting because justice essentially is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. This is the message of the good Samaritan, right? Is that there was men who walked along the road and they did not show mercy and it was their problem, not the man on the side of the road. When we don't give mercy, we are in fault in two ways. The first is we are hypocritical. We're hypocritical. I mean, how can we see mercy as a gift for us to take, and yet don't give it to others who need it as well, right? That's a two-facedness. It's good enough for me, but not good enough for me to give. Not only are you hypocritical, but so oftentimes the lack of mercy is because we are judgmental. We see the value of the gift for ourselves because somehow we think we've earned it, and yet we don't think somebody else is of value to be able to give it to them. Mercy is recognizing that you are a sinner, and giving mercy to all other sinners in kind. It's reminded me of uh, Faber's hymn written years ago. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There is kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Our prayer, O Lord, may we show your ever-loving kindness to others as you have shown it to us. Continuing on, number six, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This one, oh, happy are the holy. Now, heart imagery in the New Testament always uh, encompasses a whole being percentage. It's not that we can say, it's not that it says, you know, blessed are uh, your, you by your mind, purity in mind, blessed by you and your purity of outward actions. No, this is blessed of your heart. All of your being um, blessed by your, essentially it's being blessed by your internal purity that bleeds outwardly. This is what it means to be pure in heart. And this is exactly what the Pharisees got wrong. I mean, they were so overwhelmingly concerned with outward purity. Uh, They all added and added and added upon the Mosaic law um, to have these continually outward signs of showing their own purity and really their own cleanliness. But what they did is they misunderstood the purpose of the Mosaic law, which was to always point to a condition internally that you could never clean. Only you can clean the external, but only God can clean the internal. And that was the message that they missed. And instead they thought, well, I'll just make the external even more clean and then I'll have arrived but a cleansing within, a true cleansing spiritually, is only by offered by a father to his child. As it says by John in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, what, well, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The prayer, O oh Lord, may we long to see you face to face. May we long to see you face to face and may now we act as if we were in your presence. Number seven, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Again, rewritten. Oh, how happy are those in peace making peace. How happy are those in peace who make peace. This is, um, reminiscence again of the other beatitudes where you have received and now you're called to give, um, One of the uh, pastors that I was reading an article that he had written on this, um, basically outlined this as the crux of Christian evangelism. Um, And I wouldn't want to take that strong of saying that this beatitude alone, because I would actually truly think if we lived out the life of all of these beatitudes, there would be no greater witness to Christ um, in evangelism than pointing them to our ultimate peacemaker, our savior. That same pastor summarized the importance of not um, disregarding truth in sake of and in exchange for trying to um, convince somebody to a peaceable state. This is something we should hold strongly to and enforce peace just as strongly. He wrote it like this, to contend, but not be contentious, to disagree without being disagreeable. This is the same thing that Apostle Paul wrote on vengeance in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our prayer would be, O Lord, you made peace with us through the cross. Let us never neglect pointing others to the cross by ways of making peace ourselves. And then wrapping it up, we get to uh, our eighth statement, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, how happy are those when the world punishes us for seeking you. This is uh, considered to be the last beatitude. You may be thinking to yourself, but wait, what about verse 11? We run into another blessedness. But again, like I said, in that inclusio bookmark, these mark the eight. And then what we run into in 10 and 11 is a thorough explanation, uh, expounding and summarizing all of the teaching together that we must understand through what it means to be poor in spirit and then to live a life ready for persecution. Matthew eleven would say, continues to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love that as we're finishing and don't have much time to expound. Well, good news. We all walked through Second Peter together and had lots to expound from Peter's words about persecution. Persecution here is presented as a divine passage into the kingdom for his disciples. These kingdom-minded disciples are willing to enter into this passage of persecution, persecution for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wrote it similarly to this. In this life, the Christian victory is not found with our swords pointing towards them, but theirs pointed towards us. That's the sign of victory because ultimately it's not us who wins this victory. This is where we get in Romans, I mean, in Revelation 17, um, where the apostle uh, John again spells this out. And at one point there will come where a true sword sharper than any two edged sword will emerge from his mouth as he takes his um, stand covered in blood marked robes, mounting a horse with the power of a name that no one knows because he is going into battle and he is winning the victory. And where is the army of heaven? in clean, undefiled robes, just following behind. We're the onlookers on his victory. He's the one who is victorious. And so we would pray, oh Lord, hasten the day and let our focus be so immersed by your kingdom that we would endure persecution here willingly. It's all this written up into maybe a summary. Um, Because again, if... um, My heart would be that uh, through this time of going through all of it, um, that you yourselves would find yourself in the same condition that I want from the summary, which is that the job isn't done, that there's work to be done, that there's a gift and a participation offered to me in his kingdom. And thus I have the role to take that gift and participate in kingdom things. And so I summarized all these things together um, as this, this is the blessed person. One who recognizes their own emptiness and doesn't rejoice in self-sufficiency. One not confident of their own ability, but is keenly aware of their inability. One not assertive in their accomplishments, but is learning to be saddened by their sin. These ones are not self-serving, but they are self-sacrificing. These ones are gentle and merciful and pure. These ones have made peace. And know what it is to endure hardship, extending peace, even to their persecutors. In essence, in every regard, by the standards of this world, these blessed people are losers. These blessed people don't have it together. These blessed people don't have anything to offer that brings them merit in their spiritual condition. These blessed ones are losers. But the good news is they found a savior. And this can be the problem where we can often get the gospel message wrong. We don't need a message for winners. The gospel message is not a message for winners. It's not ones that only go out to the prom queen cheerleader or the prom king quarterback football player. This message doesn't go to the winners, the CEOs who've established themselves or anybody who has a diverse portfolio and enough wealth that they have no need in this world. This is not the message for winners, this is a message for losers. Jesus has a message, and this message was for the poor. Jesus' message was for the brokenhearted, it was for the blind, it was for the lame, it was for the last, and it was for the left out and lost. Jesus' ministry wasn't aimed at what we achieve in this life. Jesus' ministry was only aiming to point to himself as the achiever, giving you the gift of an identity that you didn't have to earn But only one that you get to receive. And thus, the call for us is how are we going to live in that? And what are we going to do to behave in that truth? Those who understand, again, that this gateway is leading to a highway of pursuing after Him is the kingdom minded disciple and is marked by being poor in spirit. So, I'm going to invite um, Colson to come back up and lead us in a time of invitation. This is Again, why that we want to always be uh, mindful to announce that when let's say you've, you've uh, been visiting for a while and maybe you've met with Lance or the welcome home team and you've gone through the process and want to make your membership known why we use the language of come join our dysfunctional family, because there's no auspice of us having it together. And by you joining us all of a sudden now you've got it right because we've got it right. No, this is all of us in a desperate, poor spiritual condition. Or maybe it is that when you're considering your relationship now with that uh, one who is the provider, the one who's giving the gift of salvation, and you stop and you think of your right relationship, and if all you can do is define your entrance into heaven by, um, well, at least I'm a good person, or at least I've taught enough Sunday school classes, or at least I've given enough money away, whatever it is, if you think you've earned this, and I encourage you, you're not understanding this message right, receive it today as the gift that it is given to you, not earned by you, and put your faith in Christ And may today be the day of salvation. Or again, for those who have believed, we now have the work of wrestling through this. May we never be done striving to live this out. May we always be repenting. And may we be doing so often when we don't live this out. And may God meet our poor in spirit with the fantastic work of the Holy Spirit in our lives.